Hello everybody, this is Odai speaking, and for this episode you'll get something different and what I think is quite special. This time it will be our host Sarah, who is the interview subject, and she will be interviewed by noted journalist on all subjects pertaining to autism, Heather Wyke. Um, I think this is going to be, this is a very interesting episode. It's something that lays out Sarah's vision in regards to the autistic empire and her beliefs. And it's something that I think you lot will all find very interesting and entertaining. Enjoy. Well, first of all, I need everyone to join the empire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so marketing, marketing campaign. Testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me? This is Audible Autism. Welcome to another edition of Audible Autism. My name is Heather. I'm host of a blog called On the Aspie Side. Today, I am guest hosting this important episode to interview co-host of Audible Autism and founder of Autistic Empire. Please welcome the Reverend Sarah McCullough. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today? I am good. I'm wearing a sweater vest and how could it not be a good day? That's a very good day. So please do tell me a little bit about the Empire and we'll go from there. Audible Autism is an autonomous project within the Autistic Empire, which is an organisation that has been several years in the making, but was formally launched in September uh, 2018. The goal of which is to give a place to autistic adults to see their autism as an identity, as civic identity that makes them part of a people and not that there's something disordered or wrong or immature about us. The reason we went down this road is because a lot of advocacy organisations for autistic people were set up by parents, which means that they come from a particular perspective. It means that they often focus exclusively on children. It means in many places, autism is seen purely as something that is a disabling factor in someone's lives rather than necessarily, you know, the neuroatypicality that many of us know it to be. And so focus very much on like the negative and calling for support for autistic people. And certainly in, in, in your country, like calling for a cure, although that's much less of a focus in, in the UK. Our, our main organisation is the National Autistic Society, who do do uh, quite good work to support autistic people but it's still from the perspective of the idea that there is something other, different, with the implication that that means lesser or inferior. And what I wanted to do was say, let's not talk about being different, let's talk about being. To say that there's nothing wrong with autism, we're just different, is still centering the lived experience of neurotypical people. And so what I wanted to do was say, let's build a community of people where we all just are, where autism is the majority, where our behaviours are the normal behaviours, and that gives us the space to breathe and to take a more practical uh, approach to how we live our lives. 
And so we we launched uh, a couple of months ago. We're still figuring out ins and outs of our website. Had to change quite a few things, but we are starting to slowly build tools and gather interest. And we're looking forward to getting in touch with other organizations that are run by autistic adults and, and seeing how we can we can work together. So tell me about the social portion of the organization. I'm I'm curious about the the empire, what what exactly the goals are, where you see it going, and how you would like it interacting with the the outside world in essence. You know, okay, so we have a conversation with each other, but where where does it go? What's what's the ultimate goal there? And I guess we'll go from there. <laughs> when I was originally sitting down to work out what is the autistic empire it was originally created when i came up with the idea for the logo and then i spent the next two years thinking yes but what does that mean <laughs> and so when i originally uh, sat down to to think about if i were going to build an autistic organization for autistic adults that was functional and practically focused what would i want to build that on i came up with ones that i think you know a lot of of autistic advocacy organizations would agree with that it's an ordinary variant of human neurology that we don't want to cure that it's not inherently a disability although for some people it is i also wanted to counter against what is a widespread attitude among a lot of autistic people that you have to accept them just as they are and that it doesn't matter how rude someone is like that's just a feature of their autism and you can't blame them for that and I wanted to push back against that because if someone's rude to you someone's rude to you and that I don't think that autistic people should get a free pass in a society to completely ignore all social norms and their responsibility uh, to engage in social relationships with others in a way that is considered and polite. So related to that specifically, if someone is unintentionally rude to another person and they, the person, I mean, they have a responsibility, I think, to apologize, but can we be held accountable for behavior that we don't know that we do? Or is it something that, you know, it, if I do something, you know, how do I respond to it? Is it more like, you know, if someone tells you you've been rude then you have to you have a responsibility to re- to learn how to reply in a way that's respectful and so on and so forth i mean is it reasonable to assume that someone can overcome something that's neurologically not there i i think that the fifth principle is autism does not excuse us from civility or personal development and what i mean by that is that if someone says that you were rude to them not that actually you should accept what they said but that you should reflect. And I think that it's it's a problem within relationships between individuals at the moment anyway, that people don't do enough to think about the impact that they're having on others. And I don't think that that's an autistic thing. I think that's the reality of how our society uh, functions at the moment. And I think that being autistic means that it is going to be harder for you to read a room. Absolutely, that is undoubtedly the case. But I also think that as an autistic adult, you should engage in a process of self-reflection and growth the same way I think that non-autistic people should do so as well. I absolutely understand that a lot of autistic people struggle with that, but that's why it makes it more imperative in order to try and work out why that isn't working. I'm absolutely not wanting to undermine the reality that we all really struggle with social skills, that emotional development is something that 
is several years forward over uh, non-autistic people. I, I always say, like, if everyone consistently fails their developmental milestones, then maybe autistic developmental milestones are just different to neurotypical ones and that we talk later, we have our first relationships later, it takes a much longer time for us to mature as people because of the reasons that we're autistic, but that we aren't excused from that process. The whole point of the fifth principle is to try and push back against you know the arguments of uh, some of the people that I've met that they're, they're just autistic and like they're just allowed to be obnoxious and take over other people's space and talk over them and actually like one that's just going to alienate you from people and no one is obliged to hang out with you if if you're alienating and two that argument is very often put forward by white straight cis men and is problematic for all of the reasons that we understand that to be problematic and so I just wanted to make sure that that was there as a principle by which we make it clear that we are not we are not simply autistic supremacists like saying like everything's fine uh, because everything isn't fine like we've got work to do can you talk a bit more about how societies disable us because i think that's also the the flip side of that you know that in some ways that we we need to learn how to be civil within the society that we have but also the flip side of that is how societies can can are, are disabling us and also how how they can they can work to be the other way just real quick and then i really want to get into um the community but please please elaborate on that because both of those are very very good topics i think the most obvious one that's coming to mind is that um, i'm an occupational therapist by trade and a couple of years ago i went to the Royal College of Occupational Therapists annual conference. And for one of the sessions, it was held in this particular brightly lit meeting room where we had to break down into little groups to have a discussion on a particular topic. And I went into that room and sat down and the lighting was so bad, I was effectively struck blind for 45 minutes. I, and I, I've never experienced anything like that before in my life. Like I've never gone into a room and literally been unable to see because of the way they'd organise the strip lighting. But it happened to me in that event. And I think that there are many examples of pure environment that don't work for autistic people that could be easily fixed if it was known about. But in many, many cases, isn't known about because neurotypical society just isn't aware of it. And you know, obviously, various countries are making huge strides towards dialogue and inclusivity and access, um, not just for autistic people, but for various disabilities and impairments. But there are still so many ways in which autistic people are finding it very, very difficult to to get through life. I, I know that a lot of autistic people really struggle with job application processes, for example, and you give them a job and they can do that job. But you tell them that they have to go through this process of finding a job and filling out this form and sending it off and then like impressing an interview and that kind of thing. It's all like hugely wasteful and inefficient. If you know that if you were just given the job, you would kill at it. There's a, there's a bunch of, of things like that that are just very, very unhelpful. The one that I would like to say in this interview that I very recently realized is that a lot of autistic people do not drink hot drinks. They, they don't seem to like it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why it happens, but I've we've had that realisation over um, a lot of the people who work in the empire that like everyone systematically boycotts tea and coffee. Now, I don't know how it works in the US, but in the UK, if you uh, go to 
any kind of uh, refreshment stand at an event or in your workplace, the options you get are tea, coffee, or water. Right. It's not too, it's not, it's not too different here. <laughs> exactly. If you have a choice of tea, coffee, or water, a lot of people would choose not to drink anything. What I do is actually take squash to all of my workplaces and dilute water um, so I don't have to drink constant hot drinks when I don't really want to but that was an example that I I discovered very recently of ways in which like society just does very subtly make it difficult to be autistic even where that's not intended and even where it's not even really an access issue as such because it results in autistic people not drinking enough and if it results in autistic people not drinking enough then it results in people becoming dehydrated becoming irritable and the rest is history and not being able to then manage emotions or anything else but also, I have anxiety in addition to uh, being autistic, and tea doesn't bother me so much, but coffee will ramp up my anxiety tremendously. So if the options are water and coffee, I will pick water. I at least will pick something, but I can definitely understand why some, someone who is in that situation wouldn't know what to do, because the if you're, you don't like really cold drinks and you don't like really hot drinks, you're kind of stuck. You can maybe put the water on the desk for a while, but then... That's basically all you got. Exactly. There's just no options on the table for a lot of for a lot of aspects. So how do autistic people answer questions about how to deal with neurotypical people when we're not neurotypical? I get from your education and your work that you would be uniquely able to do that. But I, I would wonder how someone who is not an occupational therapist or a psychologist or trained in a in a sort of classical sense would be able to describe to another Aspie how do you deal with you know neurotypicals in situations that you know for them is is you know piece of cake you know you in this case you keep your head down your mouth shut and in this case you have to say this nice thing and that will make them go away and whatever like you know how do you know what to say and and it's that that that's an interesting premise how do you how do how do we help each other in when we're trying to deal with a language that's not ours <laughs> yeah so i guess there's um there's two points to be made there one is that this is why we need to have everyone in the community involved because there are things that i can do as an Aspie, that other people can't do. There are things that I can't do that I have to have explained to me by other people. And by utilising everyone rather than just a small sliver of the community who've been picked up by services, who've been told that they're autistic and they're the real validated ones, if we actually bring everyone in, actually I think that we will be able to compile those answers a lot better. The second point to make is that a lot of the reasons that autistic people have difficulties with things is that they haven't had as many opportunities to fail as neurotypical people have so you know a lot of people develop the art of conversation by just embarrassing themselves a great deal and I think there's something I mean don't quote me about this I'm sure there's actually been research done on this but the way I understand it is that because autistic people develop later their language skills and their emotional skills come later it means that by the time they go into school and start interacting with other children everyone else has already kind of done the beginning parts of like language and uh, intersocial communication and they're just better at it and autistic people being quite anxious don't want to be constantly trying to keep up and so a 
barrier develops very, very early on where we don't get the opportunity to practice our social skills and our language skills in the way that your typical children do. And that barrier just gets bigger over time until eventually people are just like, how do I have a relationship? And no one knows the answer. I find it absolutely extraordinary, really, that I meet all of these autistic people who are like, I have failed at life. And I'm like, given what you were up against, what you have achieved is remarkable. I, I say that to people so many times, like, because obviously the number one problem is, is poor self-esteem. And I'm like, no, like, you managed to get a degree, like, you spent your entire life attempting to be someone that you're not, and you got this far. I think you should be proud of yourself. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's that's something a lot of people need to hear. Hello, welcome to this conveniently timed commercial break. Did you know the Autistic Empire has a shop? We sell autistic themed merchandise, products by autistic artists and useful things we think you'll find cool. Have you got difficulty getting your shoelaces to stay tied? Buy our one-tie shoelaces from Greepers that you can loosen and tighten without ever having to tie them again. Are you concerned about one-use straws but still want something to sit with? We have reusable straws from Glug Glug on sale now. T-shirts, badges, mugs, we've got it all, and it's all for autistic people by autistic people. All of our profits go towards employing Aspies and supporting the work of the Empire. We're a work in progress, so if you have feedback or would like to stock your products in our shop, please email sales at autisticempire.com. Everyone else, the address is shop.autisticempire.com. That's shop.autisticempire.com. We'll let you go back to the episode now. Thanks for listening. So tell me a bit about yourself. I am from the UK. I was born in London. I went to university in Manchester to study theology. I realised that I was autistic at the age of 19 and spent the best part of four years uh, trying to get a diagnosis. We finally went private at the age of uh, 23 and I was able to access decent support in my final year at university but that experience was very difficult for me and so at the end of it I didn't want anyone else to go through that so I had plans to become a digital marketer and I've got a postgrad qualification in that but I ultimately decided that I wanted to go off and do something for the benefit of autistic adults and so I asked myself what can I do that would allow me to work in that field and remembered that I'd been given an assessment at the age of 16 by an occupational therapist called Jill Christmas so she was very easy to track down and discovered she was an OT looked up becoming an OT and went off and did the training myself so I now work as a a mental health occupational therapist across multiple NHS services in London and in my spare time I run the Autistic Empire. How did you know what autism was when you were looking into that when you were young and that you would fit that criteria? How did you learn about it? Um, So it turned out that my school knew that they just never told me or my parents We found out when I was 16, there was a a change in the law that meant that people who were in year 11, I'm not quite sure what grade that is in America, couldn't automatically go into year 12 or sixth form. If they were at a school that had a sixth form, they had to meet the same criteria as anyone at a different school applying to that sixth form had to meet. And my school, for some reason, well, I know why they did it. They decided to set the boundaries quite high because I went to a 
school for academically gifted people and so they told everyone that they had to get a B in GCSE and I was not able to do this. I have, I have a real problem with maths. And at the time, my mock exams were showing me scraping Cs. And so my mother said that it was extremely unfair, given that I was taking entirely art subjects. And I should have to achieve a high score in a math subject in order to continue at the school that I'd been at for five years. And she wrote to the local MP to object to this system. And he he sent a copy of my mum's letter directly to the school who sent a very angry letter back uh, basically saying that I obviously had Asperger's and it wasn't their problem and that's crummy you know it was completely fair to insist that you know everyone get a GCSE B everyone get a B in GCSE maths and that if I couldn't do it then then that was really their problem and not to do with them that's horrible and the MP sent this letter straight to my mother so we found out that my school thought this, but it didn't really mean anything. I, you know, I think actually a lot of people that I've told, you know, you're autistic, like you're telling me that there's this particular thing that's wrong with your life and I'm telling you that this is why it is and it kind of bounces off because people don't really have any frame of reference for what exactly that means. And I guess now that I'm saying this story to you, that's exactly what happened to me and my mother. Like we had no real idea... What, what does that mean? I knew that something was wrong mm. because I, you know, was having all of the social problems that 16-year-old Aspies do, but I could not relate what I was experiencing to what had appeared in this letter. Um, so we just kind of forgot about it uh, for several years. Yeah, so so that's how we uh, we obtained a, a piece of paper that, that indicated what was up, but it didn't really go in. I left home to go to my gap year at the University of Bradford, where I was working as a, a disability support worker. And I had some flatmates, and one day one of them came home drunk and started to berate me at 2am. I think it was, about how I had insulted him by saying that my friend was much better than him at squash. And I did not understand what I was being told. I was like, but I was saying that my friend was really good at squash. It wasn't any reflection on, on you as a person. And he was like, but could you not see why I would be upset by that? And I was like, no. Uh, and he was quite drunk. And the significance of that is that he therefore did not mind spending what was ultimately the next hour and a half going over it over and over and over again until I was like oh no 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 I understand light bulb moment I was like this is what they're talking about Mm. and at that point I uh, went off to what was a 24-hour healthcare library and started reading books on autism and came back in the morning being like yeah I'm autistic this is a thing Uh, I've got a load of books on it I found out what the problem is and now my life is going to be better. And I, I don't know whether it was much better, but certainly self-knowledge definitely made a great deal of things make a lot more sense to me. And that's what started me off down that road. I can't imagine not wanting to know. I can't imagine where someone would be, what headspace an autistic especially would be in not being curious about themselves. I, I, I guess it's just got to be a generational thing perhaps but um you know i i'm i'm surprised that anyone would go no no i'm this really doesn't i don't want to know if that's the case i really wouldn't want to know i don't know do you have any thoughts on that 
I think it's a fear thing. If you have a concept of your own identity and then someone says, actually, like, you're wearing a person that you're not, very difficult to take in. It's like everyone has met someone that everyone knows is gay, but who just isn't prepared to admit it to themselves. And, you know, that that can reach, you know, absolute levels of absurdity where literally everyone around you knows that you're gay and people make jokes about you being gay and you laugh along with it, but also, like, you're telling yourself that you're not actually gay. I mean, obviously, it's much more subtle with, with autism because you're talking about something that exists in your mind rather than an attraction to another person, which is a bit more blatant. But I think in many ways, it's exactly the same thing in terms of, like, coming to understand yourself, not understanding why you're different from other people, other people recognising it in you, like, the struggle to, to come to terms with understanding what that means and what kind of life awaits you if you embrace it. I don't know. Personally, I've always found that the more self-knowledge I've had and the more, you know, introspection I've had over it, the the better it's been for me. But I guess, yeah, I can see that someone wouldn't want to necessarily challenge their their identity if they have a very ingrained sense of what their self is. So yeah, I get it. I, I guess I get that. Exactly. The, the challenge for us as the Empire is really to work out how can we bridge that gap and how can we make it much more comfortable for people to, to come to understand? You know, the, the whole reason that gay rights is where it is at the moment is because so many people went to go do that work. I mean, the original founders of the LGBT movement back in the 1890s and stuff came up with some fairly crazy concepts of identity based around the planet Uranus and calling people Uranian and dividing men into whether they were active or passive homosexuals, like that kind of thing, as if that, you know, because that that was kind of like how they managed to divide it into concepts of categories. And then you fast forward to 60 years later, Edward Carpenter is writing novels about inverts and that kind of thing. Like the whole idea of gay identity has really developed in the last hundred years. And I think that in many ways, like autism is in the same place. Like we've started off with Hans Asperger's, you know, little professors and then we got into people having refrigerated mothers and, and taking no interest in other people. And then we realised that actually most autistic people do have an interest in other people. They just don't know what to do with them. And then it became a, a disability. And then we brought in the social model of disability and that kind of thing. And now we're moving on to the neurotypical, neuroatypical model of just people having different cognitive processes, that kind of thing. It's still very much in flux like how we understand ourselves as autistic and the, and the and how that actually works like and the conceptual categories that we place upon that as human beings linguistically and conceptually still very much a work in progress and that's something that we need to continue to do as the autistic empire to work out how to conceptualize and explain autism as a civic identity, as the idea that you have a people and that you are not alone and that we have commonalities with each other and trying to work out, really nail down what those commonalities are. Because at the moment, we're still quite vague about it. We just know that they exist. We know that we found each other. We know that we have other people in our lives that we've also found through this this feeling of like ADAR, but actually being able to like nail down what is it about this person that is autism and what about it is something else. And what about the, the whole range of comorbid conditions that exist, such as ADD and dyspraxia and all of these things that exist in our heads and that we have like multiple different diagnostic criteria for, but which fundamentally at this point seem to be so common that one may as well just call it a variation 
of autism. What is this world that we live in? And these are still questions that we're having to ask, and we haven't created answers to any of them yet, but we will. Certainly not concrete ones, but we there's definitely discussions that have gone on previously in the Facebook groups about, hey, did, who else has this and who else has that and who else has the other thing? And I can see where the, the Quora that you've created is a great place for this to become an actual database, not just random questions that people keep asking over and over and getting post responses to, but it's not being cataloged in any sort of way. So uh, the catalog is something that that's desperately needed so that we can see you know, we can start making very aspy um, charts and and graphs. <laughs> you just, you know, take the data and do something in Excel with it. But yeah, I think that's fantastic. I, I think that's desperately needed. And I think that would move along the process of creating a real concept of, of identity a little bit better. Exactly. And, and that's you know, it's, it's not, it's not going to be uh, straightforward, but we're really hoping that by taking a, a systematic approach to, to these issues rather than discrete pieces of research or like one institution coming out with one thing and one organization coming out with another, if we can create some kind of holistic piece of, of work that is all interlocking and he's constantly adding in new data and recalibrating the model. I'm being really, really autistic right now, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I want to take all of this data and I want to systematize it and create something beautiful from it. And all of us will be so much happier as a result. I think we would. I think I think that would make a huge difference. And I, I've been watching these groups ask these questions over and over again. And I'm like, why doesn't anyone actually search the group for the question and see if it's already been asked or just answer it because that'll pop it up to the top of the group again. Then anyone who's new could re-see it or whatever. And I'm thinking, this isn't very productive just because it isn't it isn't actually being used for anything other than someone's personal satisfaction to feel like, hey, I'm not alone in X, Y, or Z for this moment. But we we have one group <laughs> we have one group where this guy keeps asking the same question over and over like monthly. <laughs> <laughs> and um he's sort of become the like he he can't get out of his shell and he can't he won't actually go out and meet people he desperately wants to meet people but he can't leave his house he just refuses and he's he's sort of stuck in a rut like a terrible rut and i i get the rut i totally get it because I, I i have my own ruts the poor guy he he's a little on the irritating side <laughs> he's this sweet little fellow i feel bad for him he's a young guy very young um early 20s i think but he's very much under you know mommy's coattails kind of thing and he won't leave his house and it's a shame because he does have stuff to offer but he's he's stuck and he won't you know he's too afraid to step out the door and see what life has to offer and it's a shame because i'd like to see him progress but we keep trying we keep trying to like hey what about this and what about that and we're like maybe he'll meet a girl <laughs> and uh they can have little nice little weird autistic kids <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great, but we can't get them out of the door. I have noticed that there's quite a lot of commonalities between autistic people, that the way in which I have sensory experiences do not have to relate to how someone else has sensory experiences that don't have to relate to whether they have anxiety or depression or epilepsy or how their background resembles mine in order to feel like I have something in common with them and I have found that I've known that I was autistic for 10 years and I have found consistently throughout my life that autistic people are just the people that I get on with better in my life and a lot of the people that I just really really liked subsequently turned out to be autistic found out they were or uh, were diagnosed or ultimately I told them and so <laughs> I 
have come to the conclusion that in some meaningful sense, we are a people that have a shared lived experience of existence as autistic people that we do not have in common with others, be they neurotypical or any of the other people from the neurodiversity spectrum. Okay, so I was going to ask you, so if we already have a community, why build a community? The number one problem that I found among autistic people is low self-esteem and feelings of loneliness and isolation. Even for the people who have, by all standards of modern society, succeeded, they have a family, they have a job, they have hobbies, they are integrated into their society, I have found a lot of them still feel like there's something missing. And a lot of those people feel better for hanging around other people that I know to be autistic. So what I want to do with the Autistic Empire is, one, to create a space that allows people to hang around in it that is based around the idea of autism as a civic identity rather than a disability or something that someone has to overcome or a challenge or something like that. A lot of the autistic people that I have met in my life do not perceive themselves to have a disability, do not perceive there to be anything wrong with them, are not interested in joining advocacy organisations. They do not see the relationship between the work that is going on in the organized autistic community and their lives and that's partly because it doesn't have any relationship to what they want to do with their life like what they need to just be around other autistic people existing doing doing things that they enjoy be that fishing or talking about labor market policy or you know that kind of thing they're not interested in community organizing or politics or policy development there's a, a social need that a lot of existing autistic organizations do not currently meet And so what I wanted to attempt to begin doing is to give those people an opportunity to come on board and see themselves as something that's greater uh, than themselves, to feel like they're part of something, and most importantly, to feel like they're not alone and that there are other people out there. I am LGBT, and being part of the LGBT community has very much given me that in my life. And I feel, you know, you you read the history of the people in our community, the much older uh, gay people saying, oh, you know, we just didn't know what we were. Like, we didn't know what that was. And then suddenly we came across the gay community and were like, oh, that's what we are. And then suddenly I had somewhere I belonged and I had people who understood what I was going through. And I would like us, not necessarily us, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying the autistic empire is, is, you know, completely innovative. There are lots of people having conversations around these kinds of lines, but I would like us to do our bit in order to try and create something similar for the autistic community, because I think we have very similar problems. Do you think in the long term that this would become some sort of political entity in how, because of the lack of policy and the lack of government involvement or, you know, artistic involvement in, in government policy and so on and so forth, like people aren't involved that the organization itself might take on a political standpoint or is the intention just to remain as a community? I think that there's a lot of other organizations who are already doing policy and advocacy work and that I have no desire to step on their toes. I also think that it is somewhat inevitable that nearly everything you do is political in some sense. The choices that you make are almost always inherently political and that potentially some of the decisions that we make about the the direction that we want to take ourselves in as a community will be seen as political. But I 
personally see us fitting into the currently existing autistic communal organization as very much focusing on building a sense of community, giving people the chance to express themselves, putting them in touch with each other, rather than attempting to interface between autistic people and government. In a choice between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, like, we're totally down with the Malcolm X side of things. And, you know, Malcolm was was political, but he also spent a lot of time building up Black Pride. And I think that we need to do more around that as a community. And that's something that we've been lacking which is why i felt that the autistic empire was necessary and to judge by the people who've got involved in so far they agree i i have to say i would agree as well <laughs> definitely a lot of what we're doing is you know i want to focus on doing the tools i am a practical minded person i am an occupational therapist i want to make sure that people have a goal that we're working towards but a lot of what we're doing is literally creating a dynamic and creating a conversation and ways of conceptualizing ourselves that literally just involve talking to people and that's going to be something that we're going to be doing much more of over time so i saw you had a, a test for sensory issues and I took that test. So I was curious to the, the purpose of that and what do you want to use that data for? You mean the Grand Sensory Survey? Yes, ma'am. So the Grand Sensory Survey came out of a conversation between me and my friend Alex where we were, I mean, we were arguing, quite frankly, um, about autistic people and their sensory experiences and how those differ from the sensory experiences of neurotypical people. And we found that we just couldn't find that much data on it. Like, we know that autistic people often have certain sensory experiences, but we just didn't know how prevalent they were. And sensory experiences are actually relatively under-researched at the moment anyway. I think that, I mean, are you familiar with ASMR? Um, stands for autonomous sensory meridian response oh that's the tingly feeling down the back of the yeah 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 so so you listen to a youtube video of someone crinkling a packet of pasta and like you feel all like yep tingly. yeah i get that <laughs> right so do i um that was only discovered by the internet like seven or eight years ago, and they only got around to doing an actual clinical study on it three years ago when they were like, no, this is actually a real thing. Even though the internet had been producing videos to create this effect in yourself for much longer. And there's a whole load of uh, sensory experiences like that that are essentially only being discussed on Reddit. And we have no real idea who experiences them, if there's any relationship between being autistic or not being autistic for some of them. And more importantly, is there a universal sensory experience that autistic people have that we could use as a reliable diagnostic indicator over, you know, looking for impairment in someone? Oh, you're, you're like crap at relationships. Like maybe we need to like uh, look at whether you're autistic or not. We're very much under the impression within the autistic empire from the work that we've done that there are a lot of people who are passing through the radar because they're doing enough. But at the end of the day, there are still lots of things that aren't working for them in their lives that would be easily fixed if they just knew that they were autistic. And so a lot of the work we're doing isn't about recruiting autistic people who know they're autistic. It's about finding the people who don't know that they're autistic and saying, hey, you're autistic and we've got something for you. And so what we want to do with the Grand Sensory Survey is look at the relationships between the, the data that people report and see if there's anything meaningful that we could potentially pass on to researchers for something more thorough. That would be fantastic because generally here you don't get diagnosed unless you have a very visible delay 
very something very obvious that people can pick up on or you're you're struggling in school would be a, a common one if you've if you've made it through up until kindergarten but then suddenly you're struggling in classes and stuff then they might pay attention to it but there there isn't this view that autism is something that we should look at as beyond more than just the, the medical view of it of being a, a series of disabilities not just traits of people just being different and so you know i i wasn't diagnosed till i was 40 mm. <laughs> so and that was only two years ago, and I'm still processing the the whole experience. So I fit into this category that you're talking about of people who who had no idea. And, you know, I wish someone had been around to provide this kind of information so that I could have picked up on it sooner, because it would have made a difference in my life. So I, I definitely, exactly. I appreciate what you're doing. So I think that's fantastic. And, and definitely here, we, we're so far behind. <laughs> We are so, so abysmally far behind the UK. I mean, really, mm. it's atrocious. When I see the organizations working towards work programs over there, I'm like, what is going on here? Why can't we see the same kind of things? Instead, they're they're still focusing on all the, the wrong stuff. And, and they just, it's like they want to view us as the lost generation of people. They see us as, you know, the, the adults that didn't have IEPs, that's the, the their programs they had in school. Mm. If if we don't have those and we didn't go through all, all their their training, their their ABA nonsense, mm. that, well, you know, we're, we can't be helped at this point, so screw them. Or they're doing well enough that it's not a problem, you know? Like, that's that's sort of the attitude. And so I'm, I'm happy to see that this is not, you know, that you're looking to include those of us who are just diagnosed or, you know, those of us who, who wouldn't know otherwise, because that information would be would be vital. <laughs> exactly. OK, so tell me tell me about the website and tell me what people can look forward to when they do join the Empire. So the first step to being involved is to create an account on the website and then to enroll as a citizen. Once you're enrolled as a citizen, you get a cool citizenship certificate that has a border on it, depending on how early you signed up and it changes. So the earlier you sign up, the cooler certificate you have because you won't get the color again. Once you're in, you have the opportunity to post questions on our forum. At the moment, it merely is called Q&A, but it's going to be shortly renamed and rebranded so that it looks more impressive. But it's a message board where people can ask questions about social skills or recent research, kind of the way that Quora and Stack Exchange work, but specifically focused on autistic issues and autistic people's experiences. And only autistic people can post to it. And that's publicly indexable because the idea is that a lot of the questions that people ask are very similar to the ones that other people have. And we were inspired by people that we saw on our Facebooks posting questions about different scenarios that they'd experienced and saying, oh, you know, what would you have done then? Or what should I do here? Or do you think that this is the right thing to do? And then people feeding back. And we thought that that was absolutely fantastic. So we've tried to create a space where people will be able to continue to do that. But the questions and answers are going to be searchable. So people typing these things into Google should be able to find them much more easily. And that will be accessible to, to all Aspies everywhere. We're also planning on creating a resource section that we are calling the vault because uh, I have never let 
a good opportunity for a name passed by. And that's going to be a space where we're going to write up uh, resources on, on different topics. You know, there, there are lots and lots of resources out there for autistic people and how to manage in certain situations. Uh, but few of them are written by autistic adults for autistic adults in many circumstances. They're written by parents or professionals. They're aimed at children and just like you'll mention the side, oh, that will also work for adults, that kind of thing. This is very much saying, oh, here are like hints and tips for how... We're coming up to Christmas at the moment and we're going to be producing some resources around how people enjoy Christmas and ways to mitigate things that people find stressful about Christmas and that kind of thing. We're very responsive to feedback that people are reporting to us who are already involved. So we had someone recently have a, a very negative experience while at university by someone who was, was very discriminatory towards them and they wanted to write a complaint. But they didn't know how to write a complaint. So we're going to be producing a template for how to write a complaint. I'm going to write a post on why complain. And we've very much been led in that by reactive circumstances. So another reason why people should join is because this particular moment we're only two months old and we're very reactive to what people feed back to us so if people tell us that they're interested in something then we will sit down look it up write it up and create something for it we're also planning once we've got all of that stuff built to try and create various tools that are of use uh, not not just for our citizens but for people generally but obviously like it, it's led by the people who've chosen to join us and, and share in our vision so we'll be looking at creating customizable alert cards because at the moment the alert cards that exist uh, for people who need to be able to alert members of the public or um, staff to the fact that they're having a meltdown or that they need to get out of an environment or that kind of thing. At the moment, the cards that exist, you hand over and they're very, very generic. They don't really say that much about autism generally. And even the best ones still describe autism in a way that just doesn't apply to a lot of people. I know that there are all of the autistic alert cards that I've ever looked at. I don't really need an autistic alert card, but I also like think that they're kind of cool to carry around. All of the ones that I've ever looked at don't describe the way I experience autism and they certainly don't cover what I would actually need to convey to someone in the event that I had a meltdown in public. So what we're looking at creating are cards where you'll be able to write in your own description of your traits and what's likely to happen if you get yourself into a situation and what people need to do in order to get you out of it. That's an example of the kind of things that we're planning on coming down the line. Like we have people who can be, who can just sign up, support us, get our news, um, see what we're going to have happen, push out our stuff for us on their social media or to their friends and then we have the people who really want to like get involved and do things and be practically focused the idea is to create a community where people can be involved at all levels of active and passive participation so um what kind of marketing are you going to be doing to increase your ranks well we've got our social media channels we've got our newsletter we're going to go out and actually start speaking to other autistic groups just to let them know that we're here that we're very interested in sort of working with them and building up anything that they've got going on because we all need to have solidarity with each other rather than being at cross purposes or duplicating resources uh, of which there is a limited number We've got leaflets, we're going to have business cards, but a lot of it is going to be on word of mouth and people being able to vouch for each other. And then once we have worked out, you know, as I've said several times in this interview, how we're going to bridge that gap 
between us knowing that someone's autistic and them accepting that they're autistic and then coming to understand what that means for themselves and their standing within the autistic community. Once we've worked out how to do that process, we'll then be able to be a lot more aggressive about our outreach. I could not tell you what that is going to look like at this time, but it's definitely something that we are spending a lot of time and conversations on thinking around. Thank you very much for spending your time with me, and I think what you're doing is fantastic. So thank you for that. Would you like to close at this point? Or? I guess that I would say to any person out there listening that there is a reason that you are listening to this podcast and that you are not alone that autistic people have never been alone that you are part of a people and that for a very very long time that has not been known but now that it is known and it's only going to get better from here oh that's really lovely